means to really follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And as I mentioned last week, this sermon series really is about the basics of what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. And for some of you, I've had conversations with you, and you've said, like, everything you're saying is nothing new, (laughs) which always is like something you like to hear as a pastor. We've heard it before. But the secondary part of that sentence is, but it's something that we need to hear again. And so whenever I hear that, it's just a reminder that the Spirit of God really is leading not only in my life, but in the life of the church. And so many times we have to be reminded of the basics of our Christian faith, because if we're not, then sometimes it's easy for us to forget. And so we'll often preach sermons, or I'll often preach sermons about how Jesus must be the anchor of your life, even in the storms and in the tumult of life, but sometimes it's hard to really kind of put flesh to what that means. And so if you haven't listened, you can binge watch our sermons online. You can just go to our church website. There's links on there for the sermons. And I really encourage all of you to listen to them. And you can listen on podcasts as well. But the reason is not because I want you to hear what I have to say. What's important for us to listen is so that we're all on the same page as a community of faith. And what's really important for us as a church is that we all speak the same language and understand the same things about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so as I said last week, it's like a 14-week series, um, but as I keep thinking about it, I realize, well, this is really great practical stuff, but I'm going to need some extra weeks at the end. So we may go for 20 weeks um, on the series on what it means for you to live a life that is cultivated and um, and I'm excited for it. It's one of these series that for me, it's, uh, you know, sometimes as a preacher, you have to get up every week. Some weeks you, you have something to say and something you want to share and something that you just can't hold in. And other weeks, because for whatever reason, it's harder to say some of those things. And so this sermon series has really just sparked this passion and this happiness and this joy within me. And so if I go a few minutes longer than usual, it's because there's just so much to unpack. There's so much beauty in this. And, and this is so that we can all begin to experience the fullness of life in Christ. So this morning, we're going to be looking at what we are calling witness. Your story matters. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've brought every single person to this place here. Some you've brought here willingly. Others were brought here reluctantly. But whichever way that we came here, we know that we are here to hear a word from you. So it is my prayer that you would silence all of the distractions, the worries, the annoyances, the hurt feelings, the anger, all of that stuff that seems to get in the way of our lives. We just ask that for the next few moments you silence all of that. And that as we open our hearts and our souls to you, that you would teach us that which we need to hear this morning. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I want to begin by telling you a story that you are probably familiar with. But I want to show you this picture. Some of you may have seen this if you've watched the news or been on Facebook. His name is Donnie Johnson. This man, on May 16th of this year, was executed for the murder of his wife in 1984. He's in Tennessee. He was the second person executed in, I forget how many years. It was a big deal because they started, I guess, to do that again. He was guilty of murdering his wife. Now, this is not a sermon about capital punishment. Because I think if we're divided down the line, probably, just the way life is. But this man went to jail, guilty for what he did. I'm not going to tell you how he did it, because it was kind of gross. But he went to jail, and when he was in jail, in prison, 
he gave his life to Christ, and then he became a sort of a prison chaplain who was then beginning to minister to other people and leading other people towards Christ. Now, when we hear a story like that, oftentimes, because we're skeptical, we say, come on, I would turn to Jesus too. What else are you going to do if you're going to be there the rest of your life? Like, let's be honest. We're a real church here. Sometimes we think that, like, how could that be real? But this man not only became a Christian, but he became a Seventh-day Adventist. And the week before he was executed by lethal injection, the week or a few weeks before, he was made an elder in one of the churches in Nashville, Seventh-day Adventist Church. Um, his stepdaughter, so the daughter of the, of the wife that died, um, became an advocate for him because she saw how much he had changed and what he had been doing. I mean, everyone was advocating to the governor of Tennessee. And what they were asking was not that they would, that they, they would release him, but all they were asking is that they would allow him to live out the rest of his life in prison as he continued to minister to other people because what he was doing, like obviously he had a repentant, remorseful heart and given his life to Christ and he was doing something good. He was doing something that had eternal consequences for people in the prison system. But ultimately they didn't, they didn't change a sentence and he was ultimately given the lethal injection and he passed away on May 16th, 2019. The president of the Seventh-day Adventist Church reached out to the governor the Episcopal Church reached out to the governor. The Catholic Church reached out to the governor. Seventh-day Adventists around the world reached out to the governor. The family reached out to the governor. There was, everyone was asking, just let him live so that his life would continue to at least make a difference in the lives of those who are already in prison for life. You know, as, as people in 2019, we're still skeptical about these stories as much as we like to hear this story. And what happens for us is we look at someone's story and their past and we say, well, if they've done something that's so terrible, there's no possible way that they'll be able to change their life around. I mean, we hear things like, you know, once a cheater, always a cheater, right? If, if, if he did that to you once, he's going to do it again. If he gets out of jail, then he's going to go back and do that again, right? The, the rate of recidivism is like at 89%, which is like recidivism means you're going to go back into jail after you've been released. And so for us in 2019, we look at these stories and we say, well, we don't know if we, can really, if we can really believe that this man has changed his life. And I'm not here to convince you one way or the other. Other than the fact that what's important about this story is that we make a judgment about people's lives. You make a judgment about your own life oftentimes. You look at your past. You look at the traumas, at the difficulties, at the mistakes. You look at the most horrendous sins in your life. You look at that and you make a decision about your worth and your value. Oftentimes, you look at your worst mistakes and failures, and if you're a Christian, you think to yourself, like, there is no way that God is going to be able to use me to further his kingdom, to expand his kingdom in this earth because of all of the bad things that I've done. And we do that to ourselves. We ascribe these limiting beliefs to ourselves, and we say, like, we must not be valuable enough or worthy enough to be able to do something good for God. But what we find in this story, at least from what we know, is you could literally do the most horrendous thing and somehow, some way, through the grace of God, God can still use you. And you don't have to buy this story and I, and I know that it's, it could be challenging to accept it. So I want to give you a story from scripture to kind of show you how at least as Christians, we do believe in the power of forgiveness and reconciliation. So I'd like you to, if you have your Bibles or if you want to look at the screen with me, I want to invite you to look at Acts chapter 22, a story we know pretty well if we've been in church. And it's the story of Paul's conversion, but I'm only going to do a few verses of this. Here's what it tells us. Brothers and fathers, 
Listen to the defense that I now make before you. This is Paul speaking. Paul wrote more than half of the New Testament. So much of the theology that we have as Christians, as Seventh-day Adventists, is based on the writings of this man that I'm going to share with you about. Listen to the defense that I now make before you. When they heard him addressing them in Hebrew, they became even more quiet. See, he was speaking usually in Greek, but Hebrew was the language of the first century Israelite Jewish community of faith. In the synagogues, they would be speaking Hebrew. And so Paul, knowing this, he addresses the people who are accusing him of blasphemy. He was speaking to the people who were accusing him of um, going astray. He's speaking to them in the language that they understand. And here's what Paul says. I am a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, which was one of the very respected rabbis of the time, educated strictly according to our ancestral law, Old Testament, being zealous for God just as all of you are today. So he's appealing to them. He's saying, look, I know you guys think that I'm guilty of blasphemy, I know that you guys think that I'm this terrible person because I'm now baptizing people into Jesus. Like he has done the unpardonable sin for the first century Jewish church. And he says, but look, I was just like you. I was born and raised the same exact way as you were in the strictest manner. He said, I was so strict that I persecuted this way, which was what they called the Christian church in the first century. They were called the way. I persecuted this way up to the point of death by binding both men and women and putting them in prison as the high priest and the whole council of the elders can testify about me. Okay, so Paul, Paul's defense to these Christians is like, I killed you, like I killed your brothers and sisters. Like Paul was literally what we would have called a mass murderer today. Although to be fair, you're a mass murderer if you kill three or more people in the same time, but like, you know, it's so much more than that. I mean, this guy literally did things that today we would say, well, I mean, that's fine. You can feel sorry for that and have a conversion experience, but there's only one fate for you, and that's a lethal injection. I mean, isn't that what we would say today? But Paul says, I I persecuted people. I killed people. He would later go on to say, I was there when Stephen, one one of the early church leaders, was stoned to death. He says, from them I also received letters from the chief priest, letters to the brothers in Damascus. And I went there in order to bind those who were there and bring them back to Jerusalem for punishment. So Paul single-handedly led a persecution of the early Christian church because he believed that they were not only apostate, but that they had fallen away from the one true faith of the Jewish faith of the Israelites. And he said, I will not let these people continue because they are blaspheming the faith of ours. Because remember, in the first century, the Christian church wasn't the Christian church yet. It was just Jewish people who accepted Jesus as their Messiah. I mean, that, that's what it was in the first century And Paul, because he felt that they were perverting the message of the Hebrew Bible of the Old Testament, he decided that he would go out and single-handedly persecute the way because Paul wanted to wipe them all out. And if we were honest with ourselves, that kind of person should only deserve one fate, and that is death by some sort of lethal injection. Because any time that's, I mean, we have gone, in, in, in our lifetime, we have gone to war to depose people who killed on this level. We have done that. 1945, right? Hitler, we've gone after Saddam Hussein. Like, our world doesn't put up with people who kill lots of people. That's just not something that we accept. 
And yet it is Paul who God knocks off of his horse or off of his donkey and he blinds him with a slide and he says, yes, that was your past. But that won't be your future. You see, in the story of Paul, if you find no comfort in any other part of the scriptures, is that it doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter the things that you have willfully done in your past, even if you thought you were doing the right things. God can still use you if you are willing to turn to him. In fact, so many times, it's often the people who have, in many ways, done the worst things when they repent and turn away from that life that God actually uses in much more powerful ways because then God uses them to send to the people that someone like me could never reach. I mean, let's just be honest. I was born and raised a Seventh-day Adventist. Uh, I never had rebellion for the most part, I think, in my life. Um, I never went wayward. I never had a prodigal, you know, son experience. I, you know, I, in my family system, I like to keep the peace and everything just kind of steady. And so that's how I've lived my life. I, I never went off to party. I never, I never did all the stuff of the testimonies that you hear. I'm just like, eh, I was a pretty good kid and now I'm a pastor. I mean, <laughs> my mom would probably differ, but, you know, her opinion. But What we find in the Bible oftentimes is whatever sin you're most ashamed of in your life, like God can still use you if you have an open and willing heart to serve him in light of your previous life, not despite your previous life. You see, you can't change your past. None of us can change our past. Now, you can either give in to the past and say, well, you know, my value is determined by the things I've done or the things people have said about me, the way I was raised. I mean, we have thousands of hours of tape in our minds from how we were raised. And if you were raised in a loving home where you were encouraged all the time and your parents showed up to all of your, you know, baseball games and volleyball games and they were there to support you, like, that affects you in a positive way. But if you experienced trauma in your life growing up, if your parents were critical, if your parents weren't supportive, if your parents were constantly yelling at you, like that affects you too. But that doesn't have to have the final say in your life. The beauty of the hope that is found in Christ is that whatever your past is, God can use that and transform that so that you can participate in expanding the kingdom of heaven here on earth. It's like that really popular line that says, you can turn your me- God can turn your mess into your message. But it doesn't matter what happened in your past. What matters is if in the present moment you are willing to follow Christ wherever he leads you. Now, some of you are saying, yeah, that's great, but how? I would encourage you to listen to last week's message, which is a whole sermon on what it looks like to turn away from the life that you thought you were defined by and live a life that is defined by who Christ says you are. And so I want to share, you, share with you another story because this morning, it's about your witness. See, every one of you has a story to tell. Every single one of you, your life is a story that you're telling that you can either use for good, for the benefit of others, so when they hear your story of faith, they will say, I like that. I want to know more about that. Or you can use your life, your story of your life, and just become bitter and upset and angry at the world because it wasn't idyllic. Let's just be honest. None of our lives were idyllic. Amen? Amen. Maybe some of you were. My wife's life was like, 
close to us. I'm like, I don't know you anymore. Like, her life was great. Her parents were really amazing. But like, for the majority of us, we had to go through some rough stuff in our lives. But we don't let those things define us. We allow Christ and the Spirit of God to define our worth, our value, and how we will participate in that. You see, because all of our life, your testimony, your story of faith, isn't just about how wonderful you are. The story of faith is about how wonderful God is, what God did for us, what God continues to do for us, and, the sh- and how we can share the power of God in our lives. That's what a testimony is. So the reason that I've called this sermon witness is because your life is giving witness to something right now. You're either giving witness to the power of God to resurrect, to reconcile, to redeem you, to make you come from where you are to where you're going and say, God has done this for me. Or you're putting out this negativity, this, you know, the fact that, you know, my life was terrible and it's always going to be terrible. But it's up to you to decide which story you're going to tell. Are you going to live for yourself and ask for pity from others? Or will you live for Christ and allow God to turn your pain into a testimony and witness to others? So I want to share with you, um, there's like one more, this Bible verse and another passage that I want to share with you as we continue to explore what it looks like for you to be able to tell your story of faith. 1 Peter chapter 3.15 says this, Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Now, we've often read this verse, I've talked about this verse, and I've said, see, this verse tells you that you need to have Bible verses to prove why you believe what you believe. Like, this is traditionally how we have always understood this passage. But as I reflected on it a little bit more this week, what's important about this is that second part of the sentence that says, for the hope that is in you. It doesn't say, make sure that you give a defense for your beliefs, for your doctrinal statements, for what you believe to be right or true. He's not saying any of that. He doesn't say, be ready and have a list of Bible verses so that you can go and pound someone over the head and tell them that they're wrong because of how they're worshiping or the things they believe. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, make sure that you know how to share your story of the hope that is in you. The hope that is in you is Christ. The hope that is in you, what Jesus is asking, what the Bible is telling us is, do you know your story of faith? Can you share how you've looked back over your life and you've seen how God has been present even in those difficult moments in your life and say, God was there And maybe you weren't aware of it in the moment, but the Christian life is about being able to look back and saying, I can recognize that God was there even though it was a painful experience. You see, every part of your life is leading up to this moment and whether you are open to sharing and being the testimony to those who are around you. Every nuance of your past, every suffering that you've experienced Every trauma, every mistake, every sin, everything from this moment on as you're hearing my voice in your past has been leading you to this and continues to lead you forward because God is asking you to participate in his remaking of this world until he comes again. Your story matters even if you don't think it's that important. Because God always has someone for you to share that story with. And I want to I I just kind of share this last scriptural story because I think it is defining for how we begin to see everything that I've been saying. Joshua chapter 4 verse 1. 
The Israelites have come out of Egypt, all right? They've wandered in the desert for 40 years. 40 years of their lives, they've been literally walking around in circles because they kept believing that what they kept, they didn't believe that what God had promised them could be true, right? So they gave in to their limiting beliefs. They gave in to their lived experience and said, because we've gone through all this, all these terrible things, there's no way that God is going to provide for us, all right? So 40 years of that until finally they're able to go into the, into the promised land. And here's the story. It says, when the entire nation had finished crossing over the Jordan River, the Lord said to Moses, select 12 men from the people, one from each tribe. And command them, take 12 stones from here out of the middle of the Jordan River, right, because it had been parted, from the place where the priest's feet stood, carry them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you camp tonight. Ark of the Covenant was coming. The Ark of the Covenant, when the priest touched the water, would separate. It was God's way, his presence of being there. This wasn't the first time these Israelites had seen this, and yet they still have a hard time believing. So, jo- so God tells Joshua, take 12 men from each of the tribes of Israel and have them each pick up a stone from the middle of the river. Then Joshua summoned the 12 men from the Israelites whom he had appointed, one from each tribe. Joshua said to them, pass on before the ark of the Lord your God in the middle of the Jordan and each of you take up a stone on his shoulder. So think about how big these were. One for each of the tribes of the Israelites so that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in the time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off in front of the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed over the Jordan, the water of the Jordan was cut off. So these stones shall be to the Israelites a memorial forever. Just pause there for a second. He says, take these stones from the middle so that it's a reminder of the power of God in your life. You have seen firsthand what God can do, literally turning their mess into their message literally taking the terrible life that the Israelites had lived as slaves, wandering in the desert. He says, this will be a reminder that God not only rescued you from Egypt, he provided for you in the desert, and now God is giving you a future in the promised land, a land that is filled with milk and honey, a land that you will have everything you could possibly need or desire. And there was these stones that he was supposed to erect as an altar. So I want to pause there for a second. Those stones were supposed to be a memorial. Those stones were supposed to be there so that when their children asked them, why are those stones there? Like, what is the purpose of those stones there? It's so that they could tell them the story of what God had done for them. Every one of us, has some sort of stones in our lives. That if we look back and these stones are experiences in our lives, might even be painful experiences in our lives that we can point back to in the story of our faith and say, even though I thought that was the end of me, God was present leading me forward. Yes, that was painful, and I didn't think that it would have any redeeming value, but now as I look back years from, years from that thing that happened, I can now see that, that even though God didn't make that happen to me, there was still purpose behind some of my suffering. You know, so many times we, 
We're so busy focused on the things that aren't going well. We're so busy focused on the things that we wish God would do for us that we forget to look back as the Israelites did and said, those stones, that's what God did for us when we thought that there was no more hope. You see, for you as a follower of Jesus, it's important for you to look back over your life, reflect and say, God was present there. It's not that hard to do that. It's not that hard to look back and say these life-defining moments or these thresholds of your life and say God was present there. But if you feel like, hey, pastor, like if you want me to, I can get up and do my testimony right now. Like if you know those stories, great, then I would encourage you to do something that takes a little more intention. Is maybe at the end of your day, each day, you can look over the last 24 hours of your day and ask, where was God present today? You see, so oftentimes we want to hear the voice of God. You want to hear the will of God. You want to hear a word from God. And so many times we think it's in our future, but really if we're honest and we look at Scripture, so much of what God is talking and speaking to us, not in an audible voice, but like through our experience, is from the life that you've lived. And you just have to pause for a moment, long enough from the, from the, to pause from the noise of life and just ask, where was God present in the last 24 hours. I guarantee you that if you can do that, your life of faith will grow exponentially because now you'll be having this dialogue with God about how he has been present throughout the day. And so then you'll realize that when you were sitting in the drive-thru waiting for your cup of coffee at Starbucks and you had this thought about whatever it is and you realize, well, maybe God was present there Maybe it's in the interaction with the person at the checkout stand at the grocery store and they just are happy to see you because we all know our grocery store clerks, by the way, right? And so maybe we realize, well, like maybe God was present in that moment. Maybe just as I was driving home and I was praying out loud or praying to myself, maybe God was present in that moment. Maybe as I walk through the doorway of my house to see my wife and my daughter and in that overwhelming joy to be able to be home with them again after being gone all day, it's like maybe God was present there. And then all of a sudden you begin to realize, whoa, God was present with me all day. I just wasn't aware of it. All of a sudden, you begin to experience the power and the presence of God. And all of a sudden, you're going to be picking up these different stones on a daily basis and saying, this is the story of how God was present to me in my life and how God pulled me through. And all of a sudden, your testimony isn't just about what you did in your past, but it's about how God is continually present in your life today. You see, you very, very rarely convince anyone about believing in Jesus by giving them a Bible study with 10 Bible verses. I'm just going to tell you that. Spoiler alert. Unless they're ready and open and willing and they come to you. But I can tell you that in 13 years of professional ministry, I've never out-argued someone on the basis of my understanding of the Bible. Never. But I can tell you that when I've shared my story of faith, that when I share how God transforms me, how God has been there for me, how God has turned some really painful experiences in my life to something that now I can say like, thank you God that I'm here and I'm not there anymore, but I can see why I had to go through some stuff. Now I can tell you that when you share your story, your testimony, people can't argue with it. Some people might, but people can't argue with your lived experience. 
But you see, if you're not attuned and aware and awake to where God is present in your life, you're going to have a very hard time sharing about the power of God in your life. And so you can either look at all the pain and suffering in your life and say, God's not there. Or you can say, God was there. And as difficult as moments were in my life, God is using those to inform me and build up my faith. So I want to share two last quick Bible verses for those of you that like to have Bible verses to underline. When you think about your testimony and your story of faith, think of what the psalmist in chapter 22, verse 22 says, I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. Your story is praised because your story, remember, your testimony is not about you. It's about what God has done in your life. Our testimony is always to point to who God is, who Christ is, what God has done for us, not just so that we can make ourselves look better. That's ego. Your story and your testimony must always be about the power of God and what he has done for you. And then this last verse, come and hear all you who fear God, respect God, are in awe of God, and I will tell you what he has done for me. But you can't tell that story unless you're intentionally trying to pay attention. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are a God of grace. As we wrestle with the teaching from this morning, as my friends who are here this morning, Lord, who want to have a testimony of faith, who want to kind of connect to these stories that we've read in the Bible of how you have redeemed even murderers, at how you rescued the Israelites who you did impossible things, Father. We, we want to be a part of that bigger story. And we know that you're bringing us along that story. It's my prayer for my friends who are here this morning, for our, our family here, that you would teach us to see you in the daily rhythms of our lives. That we wouldn't just long for eternity with you, but that you would show up in such a way that we would know that you were present every single day with us. Father, so that when we go into eternity and spend eternity with you, it will just be a continuation of the life you've given us here. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.